Welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. It's Violet here. Today's guest is the multi-talented artist, historian and musician, Dr. Amy Jess. She is going to take us to 1327, a year of high political drama when Edward II was deposed by his wife, Isabella, and his teenage son, Edward III, was crowned and began his 50-year reign. We look at these events through the prism of two manuscripts, one which gives insights into the relationship between the young king and his mother, while the other shows how people responded to the unprecedented deposition of the former king. Amy spent her university years deep in the Middle Ages, studying paleography, Anglo-Saxon, Old Norse and Middle Welsh. Wilde explores the mysterious, riddling tales in the Exeter Book, a rare 10th century manuscript of Old English literature, which has been in Exeter Cathedral since 1072. There are images and links to the manuscripts and to Amy's beautiful lino cuts on our website, tttpodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to Travel Through Time, Amy. Hello and thank you so much for having me. We're talking remotely today on an extremely windy day for me at least, so I hope the Wi-Fi doesn't um, suddenly go down, and apologies if it does. But today um, we're going to be talking about the medieval period and two, two ends of the medieval period. We're going to start off by talking about your book Wild, which is out in paperback, and that is very much focused on the early medieval period. So I'd like to start off Um, by talking about that and then we're going to move a little bit later for your chosen year but I'd like to start by asking you about your approach because you are really um, unusually multi-talented so you are an artist and you illustrate your books with these absolutely stunning lino cuts and you're also a musician and I know that you have illustrated the audiobook with music and um, you're also a historian and a writer. So um, tell us about this incredible multi-dimensional approach that you have. So I think there's a great deal of pressure when you're when you're at school or when you're starting at university to have a thing. And um, and certainly I felt this and I I enjoyed painting. I enjoyed um, drama. I enjoyed writing a lot, although I didn't I didn't think of it as at all central to things. I really loved studying. But I didn't have, I didn't really have one thing that I focused on. And when I went off to university, this became even more apparent that I was kind of butterflying between different activities. And, um, but in the end, I, I think something that has been a nice outcome of that is that actually, you know, with these with these books, I, it's been a, an opportunity to um, to bring all the all the things together um, that I had kind of quite seriously dabbled in over the years and some of them very seriously so when I when I wrote a PhD I realized in the process that I was learning to write I hadn't thought about writing as being central to my interests until then um but realized that I I loved crafting argument I liked telling stories 
um, when I started giving papers at conferences, it's what a lot of the feedback was, oh, you you know, whenever you do give a paper, you tell stories. And then, you know, having these these sideline hobbies of music and and art that started when when I started writing for more general audience, I realized that these stories could be enriched in ways other than just the written word. Um, and that was certainly being a, a historian of the Middle Ages gave me permission to do that because that's how medieval people approach storytelling. The private silent reading was basically a monastic pursuit in the Middle Ages, not the pursuit of most women, children when they were first introduced to, to literature. It would have you know, been consumed hourly, perhaps using a book as a prompt, perhaps just from memory in kind of um, social groups at, at um, you know, in the hall in the early medieval period um, or in the domestic space of the, of the castle in the later medieval period through tapestry, through song, through recitation. And so, you know, that that just sort of all gave, uh, put wind in my sails in terms of drawing on on various interests and not feeling pressure to have a single thing. And what did you study at university? Because I, I imagine, I mean, that can be quite a difficult, it, it can be quite siloed off, can't it, at university? Subjects are quite divided and I know that the sort of overlap between history and literature is not always seamless. Yeah it's a good observation yeah um I studied Anglo-Saxon Norse and Celtic I once told a classicist maybe this is a bad anecdote to give but I told a, a classicist that I thought that ASNAC which is the acronym for the course was a lot like classics because it studied the culture the literature and history of northwestern Europe um, in a similar way to the way the classics approaches Mediterranean ancient Mediterranean she told me to f off <laughs> really <laughs> yeah which was very funny because I was so shocked I was like did she just <laughs> I, could, I couldn't kind of react then she had walked off and and then I was like that was really mean <laughs> and is that because classics is so much more important than classical Latin and Greek and I think I just encountered a um a thing that I, t- I thought was dead like a prejudice that I thought was no longer existed and then there we go yeah but Asnak had this lovely thing of approaching a kind of time and place and cluster of cultures through the lens of very kind of a political history documentary sources uh, as well as so I could I studied Anglo-Saxon history um, for a bit but I could also take old English language and literature old Norse language and literature uh, Irish and old Irish and uh, Middle Welsh were available too. I did a term of, of medieval Welsh, and um, and alongside that, you could study uh, codicology and paleography. So the the history of of the book and the book as a as a material thing. So how it was made, the codex, um, especially the man. We're focusing on the manuscript and the um, kind of birth of of book production. And that's so useful if you're going to study manuscripts. I always think there should be more of those kind of slightly practical courses teaching you how to actually. I mean, we didn't we didn't make them beyond kind of um, we draw diagrams and we kind of fold up bits of paper to understand how gatherings were structured in a book. Um, I I was a kino, so I cycled one very, very wet morning to um, the Corpus Corpus Christi College to their manuscript conservation department or book conservation department and shivered and stood over a conservator as they were preparing a book for conservation so I was interested I guess in the more practical side but the uh 
And then the paleography was the study of script history. And the Middle Ages was a time when to write was such a, an incredibly important thing, especially in the early Middle Ages, when mostly what was being written in, 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 with a view to it lasting forever was the Bible. As I'm talking about medieval Europe, of course, medieval Christendom. There were different systems of scripts depending on the status of the text you were copying and an expectation of really high craftsmanship, high skill in relation to writing. So we, you were you're able in that period to often pinpoint scripts to very specific, um, you know, to to within a century or within half a century, uh, and to quite uh, tight geographical locations or kind of cultural uh, contexts. And so, you know, depending on the kinds of abbreviations they use or the form of the letter A or you know, the kind of ink. So that was that was wonderful studying that, and it, it allowed for this kind of multidisciplinary uh, approach to learning and I, I jumped ship in my second year I, I went off I start, I'd started going over to the art history department to go to their early medieval art lectures I wanted to know more about metalwork and um, painting and uh, stone and bone carving and that kind of thing and and how it operated and so in my third year I I moved across completely to history of art and um, that's kind of where I stayed and how does that relate to your uh, your own artistic endeavours, the lino cuts? Because, I mean, I don't know, I'm really, really not an artist in any way, shape or form, but I imagine that, you know, writing in the uh, writing a manuscript and making a lino cut, there's, there's crossovers. Or not? Um, the early printed book uh, in Europe comes in in sort of the late 14th century, mostly in the 15th century. It starts really gaining traction as a popular medium. Um, and when they're illustrated, it's frequently done with woodcut, which is very similar to lino cut. I think that aesthetic of of having ink next to ink in that way um, in a modern book, it, I mean, it evokes, I think it evokes a kind of bygone era. Um, I definitely, so in the medium term side, from the medium perspective, I, I think I'm sort of more couched in the later Middle Ages, but from the perspective of like iconographies and the relationship between text and image, that's that's deeply influenced by, I mean, my focus for my PhD was on the relationship between word and image in manuscripts, so handwritten, hand-illuminated manuscripts of secular legends. So things like Alexander the Great Romance or um, the Brute Legend, the Chronicle of the Foundation of Britain or the uh, Arthurian Romance. And so how those images operated to kind of drive the story forward, um, how things like when you have, a, they have a very strong left to right momentum, these images, so driving you forward with the text going left to right. But if a, if a character suddenly has um, a prophecy of their own death, for instance, or a vision of something, the, they'll often look over their left shoulder and the image will be shown behind them according to the kind of temporal flow of the narrative. And that that arrests you and it, it says, right, this is out of time. This is outside of the flow of the narrative right now. You're 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 going to be imagining this thing with the character. And you might then have the scene like almost in a bubble of um of them imagining their own death. And uh, so techniques like that I've um I've used in more in my first book, Storyland, but as inspiration for everything. <laughs> 
Well, we're definitely going to have some of the images on your episode page on our website. And um, I know that there are also, they're for sale on your own website. So um, anyone listening who's interested, um, they're just absolutely beautiful. And I listened to one of your other interviews where you talked about the gaps in in what we know about especially early medieval history and the the gaps in the liner cut the sort of blank spaces so can you talk a bit about that I thought that was a really lovely metaphor yeah one of the things that drew me to printmaking um in this particular style was uh, I was working with an artist called Chris Pig who lives in my hometown and he uh he makes really clever use of negative space so areas of black he's a very skilled liner cut artist he he copies kind of these the techniques of Victorian wood engravers. So when he is where he does kind of apply the tools to the surface of the liner, it's very, very meticulous, very technically brilliant. But then you get these swathes of completely untouched block, which are which come out black. And I loved that idea when it when I started illustrating medieval texts or coming up with illustrations responding to medieval literature, um, because there are so many mysteries surrounding them mysteries from the time as a, as a historical period and also from in terms of our understanding of of what might be happening in the text especially when it comes to the early medieval stuff like the old english elegies um or the welsh anglinian those black spaces seem to be eloquent of that of that void um and so that's that's something i've enjoyed playing with as i've been illustrating them and um wild is based uh, mainly on these elegies, which are in the Exeter book, which is in Exeter Cathedral. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? Like who, who Do we have any idea who wrote it when it was written down? Presumably a lot of the poems in it were much older. Yes, so the, uh, the Exeter book came to Exeter Cathedral in 1072 with the death of the first Bishop of Exeter, who was called <clears throat> Bishop Leofrich. He uh, the manuscript was probably made in the 970s. It's a collection of poems in, and texts in Old English, mostly poetry. That that the, the, the poems seem to come from disparate sources. There's no single author. There are no named authors. There are no titles. Um, there's only sort of enlarged initials to show you where the next text might begin, um, and that's not always clear. Uh, there are some 94 Old English riddles and nestled among them are these poems we call the Old English Elegies, which have a very um, powerful riddling quality, enigmatic quality, to the extent that some people have tried to interpret them as riddles. But the, and I think there are um, dialectical differences between some of the poems that suggest they come from quite different contexts or different ages. Some of them probably were composed a long, long time before they were written into the manuscript but this is the only place in which they survive and there are only four large compendia of old english poetry um in in, in existence today and this is one of them i mean it's really it should be on the national curriculum the exeter book it's such an astonishing object um so that's yeah i think that's a good potted history there yeah uh, and you divide up the sections of the book into earth ocean forest beast Ben, catastrophe and paradise which is just very evocative and lovely um, but I wanted so to ask you about your relationship with the natural world and the 
as explored in Wild because a lot of the um, stories obviously are, are very much based in nature and you talk about the idea of Wild having a renaissance at the moment which you know that you can think of writers like Robert McFarlane but then also the whole rewilding movement and, and that kind of thing so I wondered if you if you could just talk a bit about that so how 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 do you think it feeds into our historical perspective well, I think these po I mean, these poems, the Old English Elegies, evoke very powerfully the kind of natural world of Northwestern Europe in this period. It's, they are they are filled with storms, with sleet, with hail, with with kind of rain, and those things are um, and kind of ocean voyages or voyages on the sea. Uh, in, a, in a place of exile, but those um, all of those environments are kind of coupled with um, descriptions of psychological situations. Let's say um, they are. It's a very strong case of pathetic fallacy, especially in the old English ones. In the Welsh one that I include for the forest chapter, it's a slightly different situation where the narrator's psychological state actually stands almost in antithesis to the natural world that he's in so it's a kind of a, a forest bursting into spring and the cuckoo's calling and yet he's dying from leprosy so there's this contrast but in the old english ones they really there's a much more sort of literal relationship between the psychological state of the narrator and the wilderness described and i i think my you know first and foremost it's always since I first encountered them as a student aged 18, they struck me as very haunting and beautiful and like something, I wanted to do something about them one day. So that's what this is. Um, and I felt that they had a great modernity or mm, that's the wrong word. They had a kind of modern resonance because there are very few descriptions of technology in them. You've basically got the natural world and the narrator's mind, which we can still, um, identify with today and I guess the force of nature in these poems and nature that isn't a some kind somehow a separate thing you know the way we talk about nature like it's apart from us today is so silly um, and that wasn't an, you know, natura in medieval text is everything <laughs> it's, yeah it's, you know. it's all around you yeah and it, we are part of it and it's, it's everything that is including including the kind of me our mental world so you know that's these are just ways in which I thought that I thought this these poems and this idea of the wilderness could could resonate with modern readers and I also I think there's something about their mystery and the idea of the mystery of the poems because we don't know if if they were meant to be riddles we don't know if they have some kind of very little I mean that constantly being reinterpreted and someone else will have found ah the meaning of Wolf and Erdwatcher, which is one of these poems about a woman pining for someone she calls Wolf and she's out in the fens on an island and there's a kind of love triangle going on you don't really it's very hard to comprehend but um personally as much as I I hope that people keep pursuing the quest to to find these solutions I, there's great joy in in the fact for me in the fact that there probably is no way of definitively proving what they mean. But perhaps the meanings were always intended to be ambiguous. I, I think that's one of the features about the past, which has always strikes me is how 
they just didn't seem so hung up on having certainty and things being black and white as we are today. I think that's part of the thing with the wilderness is, or the theme of the wild is there's, with these poems, there's a certain amount of, you have to perform a certain amount of self-humiliation. You're like, okay, I may never understand exactly what these mean, but I can find them beautiful or I can find them disturbing and I can kind of crouch down into them and explore them. And it's okay. You know, I don't have to come out with a, with an answer. Definitive meaning. Yeah. And and I think that as we reassess our relationship with, with nature, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and with things like rewilding when it's done in a, in, you know, in its, in its best form, it is an act of kind of submission (laughs) Yeah, and so that's that's I suppose another way in which the wild and these poems seemed to be, or the wild seemed a good a good way of kind of exploring these poems. Yeah, and I think um, as you you talk about you know you, that you go down into these I don't know was it a barrow and uh, and sort of go and lie in the reed beds and slide through the reed beds and the landscape is a way uh, of connecting with the distant past because you know parts of it are the same and I guess the weather and all, all those sort of features of the sort of universal features of the natural world and and that is a way of of getting an understanding of the distant past isn't it yes yes certainly and there are the kind of pockets of landscape that as with the fens you know which were drained in the 18th century but there are just there are tiny little fragments still surviving where you can go and, and kind of imagine what the narrator of, for instance, Wolf and Edwatcher that I've mentioned already, had in mind when they're describing this bleak, um, this bleak landscape and uh, and their their psychological situation. And in that sense, there's, I mean, the the Britain would have been considerably wilder than it is now, obviously, when these poems were written. And I think that kind of acknowledging the loss, um, as well as the fact that some some things still exist, we can still go and see some of these things. Um, hopefully, it's just part part of this massive movement ongoing today to try and foster a love of the wilderness. Um, yeah, not, not as a wasteland as it was seen in the Middle Ages, but as somewhere rich and uh, and full of value. Hello there, it's Peter here and it's time for a word about our sponsors, ACE Cultural Tours. ACE are a much-loved and long-established business that are based in the award-winning Stapleford Granary Building just south of the University City of Cambridge. Now these tours are split into categories like archaeology, art and architecture, houses and gardens, music, nature, and there are more than a hundred of them setting off over the year ahead. Let me give you a flavour of just a few. In May, for instance, there's the Jewels of the Loire, medieval and Renaissance chateaus, an eight-day adventure into some stirring French architecture. Or, in June, you can join a trip to the spectacular Bach Festival in Leipzig, led by the expert tour director, Richard Wigmore. Or, if you fancy heading in the opposite direction, then in mid-July, there's a five-day archaeology tour to one of the most majestic Roman monuments in the whole British Isles. That's Hadrian's Wall. To find out more about any of these and many, many more besides, I really do suggest that you explore their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk. It's the perfect place for the culturally curious. 
Well, I think we should move forward a bit in time now. So I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could visit a year in history. And I know you might well have wanted to choose one that was further back, but it's very, very difficult to find three events to pinpoint. Tell us which year you've chosen. Yes, it's a complete um, theme shift. I've chosen the year 1327, which was important in my PhD research, which was much more focused on the 14th century. So can you give us a little brief um, background of we're in England, it's 1327. Just give us a very brief sketch. I know we're going to go into detail about the situation with the royal family in your three scenes. So just tell us briefly what's happening in England in 1327. So at a royal level, Edward II has been deemed an incompetent king. He is far too into ignoble activities like hedging and digging. The natural world, it sounds like he was a fellow after our own hearts. Oh, which is great because I actually the only time I've met King Charles when he was a prince, it was at a hedge laying competition on his land. So he's in, he's into hedging and ditching, um, but will hopefully have a much more yes, yeah, <laughs> successful let's reign than Edward II. <laughs> and not the same kind of end as well. Which we'll come to. So he, he, he'd he also gathered a, a small group of barons around him who he, he, he was accused of showing favouritism towards these barons and even possibly having had sort of a romantic relationship with one in particular called Piers Gaveston. And so in 1327, and the very, very early on in 1327, we have um, his, his wife, Isabella of France, and her lover and political ally, Roger Mortimer, pressurising the king to, to abdicate, um, and they're successful. So this, this happens on the 21st of January. Um, he, his, uh, one of the major barons in the country formally gives up his his fealty to the king and this is a kind of he's doing it like on behalf of the of the English people and um and at this point Edward kind of says he's agreed to depose uh to be deposed to abdicate and then within a few days his son Edward III who's only 15 years old is proclaimed the new king this must have been a very unusual situation I mean had this yeah really unprecedented Mm. highly dramatic highly contentious especially because you've got a his queen behind it and i love it yeah yeah exactly or as was perceived you know and uh and then this 15 year old boy put on the throne he's his coronation takes place on the 5th of february 1st of february um 1327 so this is the kind of situation in england at the very start of the year i've chosen and are we at war with anyone? Are we at war with Scotland and France or both or neither? We're at, at this point, throughout Edward II's reign, the emphasis has been on completing the work begun by his grandfather, perceived as a very, very good king, Edward I, in um, claiming overlordship of Scotland. So the origin myth of Britain is all about this character Brutus, a Trojan who comes and he he founds a race of kings in Britain he rules the whole of Britain and this is an old a story from the the Britons really the Welsh uh, but it was appropriated by the English and who believed that Brutus's eldest son had received the territory that would become England while the, the two younger sons got the territories that would become Scotland and Wales and so they could legit he could legitimately as king of England 
claim kind of dominance over his brothers. And so his successors all the way up to Edward I could also claim dominance over Wales and Scotland. And so this was kind of a, one of the main arguments around his claim to suzerainty or overlordship of Scotland. And this continued into Edward II's reign, but with minimal success. And yeah. um, so that's ongoing. That it's that becomes that becomes an issue when the Hundred Years' War, the, the sort of issue with the situation with Scotland is central to the the start of the Hundred Years' War, which is a, England's well, Edward the Third. So now we're jumping forward. The fifteen-year-old is no longer fifteen. He then claims um, the crown of uh, France. So. But that's all tied up with the Scottish issue too. So, you know, the, these things are related and they're ongoing. Wonderful. Well, let's go to your first scene. Can you take us there? So, yes, yeah, so I want to take us into a workshop in which they are making books, a, a libraire, as they were called in France. It's probably a commercial workshop by this point. You've got a lot of literate laity, probably this manuscript that's currently in production in this workshop that I've taken you to is is going to be given to a noble reader, maybe a noble family. And it's quite uh, run of the mill. It contains a chronicle about the origins of Britain that runs all the way up to the reign of Edward II. And it is very biased. So it's a chronicle by a guy called Pierre de Langtoft. And it's vehemently anti-Scottish. And it's all about this kind of uh, claim to Scotland. And it's preceded by a series of illustrations showing the kings of England from William the Conqueror up to Edward II. Um, and this is a known cycle of illustrations. It's found elsewhere. And you just have the king enthroned with a few little attributes that may be irrelevant to his reign. And that it's always quite glorious. And underneath most of the kings, apart from a few for various reasons, uh, where they have genealogical diagrams, there's a poem called the Edwardian Hexametric Genealogy, for those who are interested. Catchy title. <laughs> yeah, uh, that sort of gives gives praise for that king and some, some salient details about his reign. And when it comes to Edward II, who, when this manuscript was being produced initially, was the king, <laughs> <laughs> it has a kind of praise poem to him. And it says, do not delay in defeating the vile Scots. Did you know that Brutus was only 33 years old when he claimed the whole of Britain? And the portrait of the king in the other versions of this um, that survive of this uh, cycle of, of poems and images show Edward II sitting gloriously, kind of scepter in hand on his throne, uh, being king. Um, but the reason I'm interested in this manuscript particularly is that something happens mid-production. And I, I do like I do like seeing um, craftspeople scratching their heads and trying to work out how the hell they're going to make this commission work. Now the king has been deposed because not really applicable anymore. But maybe they've received the money. They can't, you know, it's how are they going to make this work with the materials they have? And how are they going to keep it orthodox too? They need to find out quickly what they're allowed to say. Because it's a really politically tense situation. And so what's probably happened, because how manuscripts were produced is that they would be written first by the scribe then they'd be handed over to the illuminator or illustrator to be to be filled with pictures. Do you think this one would have been copied from one of the other ones and possibly not one of the ones that have survived? Yeah, so there, there were probably many other versions of this text in the circulation. 
Um, this is a particularly nicely illustrated one. It's, it's called, uh, it's in the British Library. It's called Royal MS 20A2 and it's available online. So if you look- Yeah, we're going to put a link on the um, on the website, definitely. It's, it does look a little bit rough to our eyes, but it was probably quite a costly object at the time. So the scribe has done their thing. They've written the whole thing out and they're about to hand over to the illustrator. And then Edward II is no longer king. And so- it, the good thing about parchment, animal skin parchment, is that you can erase text without destroying it. So they would have used some kind of abrasive material, maybe even a knife, to scrape the ink of his poem off the surface. And then they replaced it with a text called The Lament of Edward II, which is in Old French. The rest of the poem, the other, the previous bits have been in Latin. And it's uh, in the first person, and it was believed to have been written by Edward II himself, saying oh woe is me i was such a terrible king it's definitely the best thing to have done to have abdicated the throne of england and passed it on to my very responsible albeit quite young son edward and so this is kind of very um earnest justification on and from the king's perspective which hopefully puts to bed any kind of rumors that isabella and mortimer pressurized him into doing it that kind of thing and so this is this has been put in by the scribe and now the illuminator has to come up with a better image because the one of edward ii looking happy on the throne won't do it anymore and so they've got this completely unique image of edward ii sitting on his throne but handing his crown to a young man who is clearly edward iii his 15 year old son and edward iii is taking it from him and either side, you've got what this, it, you find in some of the other illustrations, these strong kind of um, like branches and leaves growing up either side, sort of symbolizing the vigor of the royal line as a kind of tree. Um, and that don't worry, nothing untoward has happened. <laughs> this is all, all um, under control. So this was the artists and the, the assemblers of the text getting together in this workshop and being like, what are we going to do? There's this poem available. Maybe it's been um, issued in the town or or given as some kind of sermon, and they're able to take that, you know, and and produce something um, legitimate. <laughs> and does the poem appear anywhere else? I don't think so. I think <clears throat> it's the only surviving version, and it's the only. I'm sure it was. It. I don't think they came up with it themselves. No, presumably that they're trying to do the right thing and and not rock the boat and. Uh, especially the fact that it's in the first person. It would be quite a, a bold thing to do to, to um, write from the king's perspective. And they might well have consulted the patron, whoever had commissioned it, mightn't they? And said, you know, what should we do? It's a bit tricky. Which I think we, when we encounter political history, it's so often quite far away from life on the ground and especially kind of commercial, everyday town life. You know, this is... Uh, perhaps was in there there were commercial workshops making these kinds of things in Oxford and in Norwich and you know and in London of course um so you know we're getting a little insight into a kind of what are we going to do yeah and it's always fascinating those like when there's a mistake or something has gone wrong there's been a sort of disruptive moment and you suddenly get a little insight into the people who were making it. I love that. Wonderful. Well, let, let's move on now to your second scene. Um, where are we off to this time? So the second scene is we've gone, we're going higher now. We're going into the court, into, I'm going to say, let's say we're in Edward III's bedroom and he, yep. he's newly king or just about to become king and his mother's bought him a present. 
Now, this is a thing in the Middle Ages. Uh, as this was something I was very, very interested in when I was writing my thesis, was the role of elite noble women in commissioning books for their sons, especially, to kind of foster their chivalric education. And so there's enough evidence to to um, to say that books of Arthurian legend, books about Alexander the Great, these were, and especially with illustrations, and they're in the vernacular, so old French, and they're written in verse, so they're very engaging texts with these with these lovely pen and wash pictures that are very sort of focused on details of armor and trebuchets and action were commissioned by by noble female patrons to to give to their their sons probably around the age of 13 14 when they're coming into their age of understanding and they want them to start pursuing their chivalric training and it's not enough just to know how to use a you know, to use a sword or ride a horse, you have to be ideologically completely invested in this idea of being a knight. And that's what these texts are, are often about, is this kind of questing, martial, noble um, ethos. Of course, if your son is a prince or a king, then you're going to up the ante a little bit. And uh, and there's some more. There were these texts called uh, Mirrors for Princes that were oh, in circulation. Yes. Yeah. But there's one text in particular called The Secret of Secrets, which was supposedly written by Aristotle for Alexander the Great. And there's a a text inspired by The Secret of Secrets by someone called Walter Milemeet, who was alive and working on this when Edward III became king. And he was, I think, commissioned by Isabella of France to produce this book which still survives, Christchurch MS-92. I think you'll have a link. Yeah. Um, which, and, and I believe she, it was via her that it came to Edward III, age around 15. And it's this guide to kingship based on the pseudo-Aristotelian version um, with loads of illustrations kind of glorifying his status as king. Um, one shows Ed, uh, St. George handing him the arms of England. This is the period in which St. George really starts to emerge, largely through Edward III's patronage later in his life as a patron saint of England. Um, there's another of St. Christopher carrying the Christ child on his back. Christopher's a real emblem of not only a patron saint of travellers, but, but an emblem of strength and endurance. He crosses a river with the Christ child growing heavier and heavier and heavier on his back until he's carrying the whole weight of the world and he manages to make it across. So this is like, you know, you can be this kind of king. Yeah. But there's this one full page illustration that I feel instinctively would have jarred slightly for a 15 year old boy, especially one with a personality like Edward III's, which we obviously know with hindsight was quite forceful and proud. Um, it shows this young king enthroned next to his mother. She's also enthroned and crowned and their heraldry is underneath. So there's no doubt about who it is. And they are both being passed a four-leafed clover by an angel who's kind of descending between them. And um, four-leafed clover was a symbol of good luck in this period. It was also a symbol of kingship. In Middle English, it was called Kingis Kroon. So um, this, this symbol of, of rule, of royal rule or kingship, is being handed to both of them. So this is, you know, assuming this is a commission by Isabella, then and a gift from her to him at this moment in his bedroom let's say she's saying yes darling you're king you're king it's going to be brilliant it's going to be wonderful but, but I'm going to be sitting next to you the whole yeah. time <laughs> <laughs> and um and I just and already by this point he had defied Isabella and Mortimer he they had um 
wanted him to meet Parliament some days, weeks previously before his coronation. And because his father is still alive at this point, um, he refuses to because it should be with permission of the king that somebody else oversee Parliament. So he's basically saying that his dad's still king. So anyway, he's already showing that he doesn't necessarily agree with everything they say. So this manuscript's a wonderful illustration of maybe what Isabella wants to happen, but with kind of a wider con understanding of context, we can think, ah, this might not have been entirely welcomed by the young king. So this is what you know, we imagine him sitting there. But the ir irony is that then he clearly read these texts and he imbibed ideas about what a king should be. Um, this this one by this particular book emphasizes the importance of baronial unity so not having favorites like his dad did and of um of noble pastimes like tournaments and and hunting as opposed to ditching edward iii founds the order of the garter you know within within 15 years and he that was the first order of knights he creates he recreates arthur's round table essentially I mean he literally has one as well and he also uh holds tournaments he holds he takes pageantry very very seriously so he's 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 taking on the stuff in this book and then he uses it against his mum that's the problem okay it's a good quite good plan and well and it must have it must have been good advice because he was a, a very successful king for 50 years wasn't he yes and I mean it definitely was especially in his hands but I think the clincher really is when it comes to um him defying his his mother's aspirations you know within three years of this gift so in 1330 he storms nottingham castle where she and mortimer are staying and he and he's got a, a group of lads with him his knights and they arrest mortimer and have him summarily executed uh, and then he claims his majority so he's definitely not on board with the image of him ruling side by side with his mum no, and what does he do to her? Does she get sent to a nunnery or something? She's just not... She's sort of... She's kept on quite a good allowance. Okay. And uh, I think there's some evidence that she had a bit of a nervous breakdown after all of that. Um, maybe she didn't. I don't... I, I'd like to think she She just... That's sort of uh, the past putting a spin on it. The chronicler's putting a spin on it. But um, she, she did eventually take the vow of the poor Claire's but she kind of retreats. I guess she admits defeat. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, let's move on to your final scene, which is in Gloucester. Yes. So um, we're now at the funeral of Edward II. So we're all, if if we're British listeners, will be familiar right now with um, the usual run of things when it comes to royal funerals and coronations. If there's anything other than a royal coronation. <clears throat> um, so you have usually have the funeral first. And then the next monarch is crowned and the two kind of go hand in hand as a as a very conspicuous and often very beautiful um, transfer of power. Uh, it's just kind of a a visible version of an invisible transformation. So it allow, enables us as um, as the polity to to conceptualize what has taken place for the body politic, you know. Um, the king is dead, long live the king. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that that's usually what happens and what had happened in the Middle Ages up to this point or in medieval England. But uh, Edward II was still alive when Edward III became king and he remains alive for most of that year. 
11 months after well actually it's not quite 11 months so it's the, the funeral takes place 11 months later but it's in on september the 21st edward ii's imprisoned in Berkeley castle and dies he almost certainly dies there were lots of rumors circulating sub in subsequent decades and to this day that he escaped went off and lived as a dominican in italy or something became a hedge layer perhaps perhaps yeah that would be nice but he he died and it was widely believed that he had been killed slightly later chroniclers started this story of the red hot poker oh yes um, some way you wouldn't want a red hot poker um this is quite typical of medieval chroniclers to invent quite i think quite probably invent what's known as a lex talionis a punishment in kind so because he'd been accused oh, of course of yeah. homosexuality it seemed somehow fitting to uh to have him die by this method and so anyway he dies and there is a two-month gap before his body is interred but the funeral itself this is what where i want to come to is that it's a very it's a it's a proper state funeral and he's the first king of England to have a wooden effigy instead of lying in state. So his his hearse is brought through the city with this wooden figurine on top of the coffin with very realistically painted skin and with real hair. And he's dressed in his coronation regalia uh, robes and he's holding regalia. So he's got a scepter. He's got a silver crown. He's got a silver gilt ring. The hearse itself is beautifully adorned with all kinds of figures of saints and it's got four big gold heraldic lions at the corners which are in in mantles and they're holding they're holding the arms of England and so you know this there's a fascinating article by uh, a scholar called Joel Burden which talks about this idea of the, the funeral as a rite of passage and how the situation around Edward II's funeral if you gave it any thought was very destabilizing and controversial you know regicide a massive political upheaval, constitutional impropriety, all of these things um, could have led to a great sense of instability in the, among the populace. But we know that procession through Gloucester was, was at least expected to be very well attended because there were oak barriers set up to restrain the crowds. And people would have seen this highly ornate, highly orthodox funeral, which used these symbols of continuity, like the lion, like the heraldry, these these. Uh, the regalia, the um, coronation, jewels and crown that would have been symbols of kind of the permanence of the royal line, a little bit like the trees growing up outside of the crown in the manuscript we talked about first. And a lot of this, these details come from the wardrobe accounts. So we know it's not just chroniclers who could make stuff up, but we know what was really used for the funeral. And then he was buried in Gloucester Cathedral, which by this point hadn't had its big refurbishment. It was actually it's believed, um, revenue from pilgrims to Edward II's shrine who started treating him as a saint. This isn't unusual with quite unsuccessful kings in a political sense. They start being venerated as holy. So clearly there was some kind of success and he's not he's not a baddie. He was just a bad king. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and then you, know, you get this kind of Gothic refurbishment of Gloucester Cathedral, making it look how it looks now with these beautiful spires and um, sort of pinnacles and things. But yeah, this is that was my final scene. This this elaborate funeral, this expression of stability, continuity, wealth, reassuring everyone that it's all going to be fine. And why did they make the wooden effigy? Was it because it was so long since he died, so they couldn't really have him 
lying in an open casket. Possibly. I mean, I guess that's one of those mysteries. You know, was it that there was no body? <gasps> yeah, maybe. Dun, dun, dun. But <laughs> from that point onwards, they did start using effigies. And some yeah. of them survive. You can go, only go to Westminster Abbey and go into the, the treasures rooms there. You, there are some effigies from later medieval kings. And I suppose they must have been made from life or death. I mean, they must have been made... Yes, it's, it depends on the kind of, it, that sort of opens up the issue of portraiture. Mm. Yeah, and I think we're, it's sadly we're, we're too um, that's late. A good, that's at least an hour. That can be for next time. So if you could have picked up something from one of these three um, scenes that we visited today to bring with you back to the present, to keep, what would it be? I think possibly Edward II's crown, his coronation crown. That would uh that would be a nice thing to have the silver gilt one from his effigy. Um, it would make a wonderful storytelling device. That's a great choice. Um, thank you so much, Amy, for talking to me today. It's been really really interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. What a great challenge. <laughs> <laughs> that was me, Violet Moller, talking to Amy Jeffs about her book Wild, which has just been released in paperback. Her illustrations can be ordered from amyjeffshistoria.com and as always there's lots more information on our website tttpodcast.com I hope you enjoyed listening until next time goodbye <laughs> <laughs>